Welcome to Emotional Savvy, the Relationship Help Show. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. If you're ready to increase your confidence in conversations and conflict, deepen your self-awareness, expand your connectedness, and enrich your relationship with yourself and other humans you care about, and even those you wish you didn't, you're in the right place. Enjoy today's episode. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. I'm glad you're here as usual. So much to talk about, so many episodes waiting to be done and waiting to bring to you. And today I wanted to bring something that is really should be top of mind for us because there are too many situations where kids are being bullied. Yes, there are lots of situations where adults are being bullied. That kind of emotional abuse we talk about, I talk about it all the time. But sometimes we just don't recognize this whole bullying situation in schools once our children have perhaps uh, graduated or we're far away from the school system and we just hear about it when something awful happens. But I really want to bring attention to it today. Many of you may not know that I was in education as a teacher and a counselor and an administrator for 28 years. And on the side, of course, I had my practice helping people work with the situations in which they find themselves that are emotionally abusive. I also worked with people with life-threatening diagnoses and their families. And of course, I had a high, high, high level of interest in at-risk teenagers. And so that brought me to invite uh, this conversation about bullying and further to that conversation about bullying and suicide. When you are at a time of brain development, and remember our brains grow until we're 25 to 30 years old. So when you're at the time of brain development where you do not have a good way to calibrate whether or not what someone says is true, you are at a high level a high feeling level, a high level of accepting what other people say because you've been told by your parents who you are. And that happened since you were born. Whether you were welcomed with joy or you were welcomed with resignation, (laughs) all of those things have an impact on you. And then as you're growing, perhaps you don't feel emotionally strong. Perhaps your parents are not feeling like they are emotionally strong. Perhaps your parents don't validate you. Perhaps your parents have difficulties. Perhaps your parents are just way too busy and too stressed. And they don't give you the attention that would be ideal for you. I mean, these are situations in which we find ourselves often. And when you are feeling less than as a child, it kind of broadcasts. You know, it's not only the outward symptoms that maybe maybe your shape is not what the trendy shape is right now, or your hair is not the way it ought to be, or you wear glasses or you don't wear glasses, or any kind of distinction that you have as a human being that they don't have or they don't like and they're feeling confident or appearing confident because all bullies are cowards. There's no question that they're cowards and they want to be on top of the pile because they feel badly about themselves. 
And I know that's hard to believe because they behave so badly, but that actually is what happens. And that's what's actually happening in the whole th movement that I talk about that I created around identifying what I call hijackals, those people who hijack relationships for their own purposes and then relentlessly scavenge them for power, status, and control. And this is happening in schools. If a child has a hijackal at home as a parent, then they're going to behave badly in school or else they're going to be super passive and then they're going to be picked on in a high likelihood. And we need to be awake to this kind of thing as uh, parents, as people, as educators. Um, we need to really be on it. It's not something that we can ignore. Children are dying. You know, I want to talk about a few statistics with this strong link between bullying and suicide and that we have to be really thinking about that. I know we don't want to, but we have to be thinking about that because there is more and more um, correlation between bullying and suicide, particularly in the United States where I live, but I'll, I'm from Canada and it's there too. And Bullying is not just, quote unquote, part of being a kid. It's a serious problem. And it creates all kinds of negative effects in the child who's being bullied or shamed. You know, bullying and shaming go hand in hand. That's what hijackals do. They bully you, then they shame you. And they make you to feel less than you are. And for some reason, when we're adults, we still believe them. But when we're children, we don't have the brain capacity sometimes to figure that out. And so you take it in and you believe it is true when you're a child. Here's some statistics. Suicide is the third leading cause of death among young people. It results in about 4,400 deaths a year in the United States. And for every suicide among young people in the United States, there are at least 100 suicide attempts. And it turns out that over 14% of high school students have considered suicide and almost 7% have attempted it. Now you can go and reread these statistics if you like at bullyingstatistics.org. You really need to know this because it's got to get into ourselves, got to permeate our brain. This is happening. We can't ignore it. So bully victims, they're two to nine times, two to nine times more likely to consider suicide than victims who are not bullied. And that's according to a study by Yale University. Now, in Britain, it was found that at least half, half of the suicides among young people were related to bullying. Half of them. Another statistic, 10 to 14-year-old girls may be at even higher risk for suicide. And according to statistics reported by ABC News, nearly 30% of students are either bullies or victims of bullying. And get this. 160,000 kids stay home from school every day because they're afraid of being bullied. We can't have that stuff going on. That's ridiculous. Do you check with your children to see how they behave? Are you watching their behavior? Do they make deprecating remarks about their friends? Do they dismiss people's problems? Do they demonstrate any empathy? 
watch your kids for that. If they are not behaving well, you need to do something about that. You need to get in there and explain to them that that's not an appropriate way to be. You're going to have to talk with them repeatedly. They're not going to like it, but you have to talk with them repeatedly to get them to see how that's not okay. Show them videos, take them to YouTube, do everything that you can to show them that they need to have empathy for people who are different or that they need help so that they don't feel they need to bully to make themselves feel good. So these are very, very important things. And when people are being picked upon by things they were born with, physical attributes, what's up with that? I mean, what is up with that about any human being doing that? Why do we have these judgments that people are less than because they may be suffering in some way from a physical deformity or a physical difference? And they may not be suffering, but you make them suffer because you dismiss them or discount them. Or in the case of bullying, you have way too much to say about it. So these are very, very important things for you to look at. And I hope you will. And today we're going to talk about it with Dr. Aaron Smith. And he has made it his life's work, because he is an educator and administrator, to find out what we can do. So enjoy today's episode and take good care. Bring your friends along to Emotional Savvy. Tell them about it. Send them an episode. Get them to come along. And you can find me at 4relationshiphelp.com and my YouTube channel every week. Monday night, 6 p.m. Pacific, a live stream show called Help for Toxic Relationships. You can ask your questions and join in the chat there. So visit me at 4relationshiphelp.com and let's talk soon. Come on back to another episode of Emotional Savvy. Take care. Hello, welcome to this episode. As usual, we bring you different angles on how to create emotional savvy in your life. And that's why it's called the Relationship Help Show, whether that's relationship with yourself or with significant people in your family or with the community or people at work or in the world in general. So today we're doing something a little bit different. We're talking about schools. And of course, there's so many relationships in a school setting, whether that's uh, student-to-student relationships, student-to-staff, student-to-coach, student-to-principal, student-to-subjects, students-to-teams, so many pieces. So today my guest is Dr. Aaron Smith, and he has a particular interest in the subject and things that are called the STEM curriculum. We'll talk about that, but more importantly, we're going to talk about those relationship issues that may help or hinder students and how we can help students overcome those things, no matter what our relationship with is. And so welcome to the program, Aaron. Hi, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, I was in education for a very long time, and so I am very interested in today's topic. And so let's just think about those kids that we see at school, and they are kind of marginalized. 
Mm-hmm. They're the kids who you walk through the school and they're looking at the floor. They're kind of sullen, maybe a little dejected, maybe the outright bully, you know, but mm-hmm. kids who are not sort of just making it through in the main thrust of students. They're, they're kind of hung up in some way or the other. Mm-hmm. So when we have those kinds of students, what's the best way to approach them if you happen to be an educational professional? I think number one, you hit the nail on the head is you have to look at the body cues and look very softly and subtly and just find the moment where they're not around a lot of students. You know, maybe they're working on something quietly and just say, Hey, is everything okay? You know, what's going on? You just haven't seemed like yourself. And sometimes, and you know, that sometimes they'll just shrug their shoulders and sometimes they'll just open right up. It's just important that they know that you're right there for them. And I think that's part of the issue is a lot of the kids who are suffering, whether it's mental illness, um, you know, the fear of being not accepted, you know, having somebody right there side by side can speak volumes for them. And that's the first way you do it is you slowly and subtly build trust in them. Yes, and I think the key to that is slowly and subtly. I think those are two very good words because kids who are having a difficult time are kind of concerned that somebody's going to say something that's going to make them feel like there's something wrong with him. Mm-hmm. So they're either in that dismissive passive place or in that go ahead and tell me what you think kind of place mm-hmm. and everything in between. So I think it really is so important for us to be able to recognize that you could kind of sidle on up to a kid, you know, mm-hmm. and just say, how are you doing? You know, or good morning or whatever. Maybe that's the only interchange you have for several days or even weeks sometimes. Yep. And then slowly it's eye contact. And then it's, oh, I saw you on the field the other day. What were you up to? Or, mm-hmm. you know, engaging them like I see you kind of conversations. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Oh, I totally agree with you. And, you know, some kids, they feel uncomfortable talking to you in that classroom or in the school. But you find places where they're a little bit more comfortable. And and I remember one time I, I met a kid at a um, – at a ball field, Todd Stadium, for example. And even though we weren't in a classroom, we just struck off the greatest conversation, you know, listening to their favorite football team. And, you know, you form a little bond with them. And, and right from there, it just seemed like you knew we connected. And that's such an important venue is, is not necessarily the location, but I think timing is also of critical importance too. Hmm. Yeah, timing can be everything, as we've all heard, <laughs> you know, no matter what relationship it is. I mean, mm-hmm. just think about bringing up a delicate subject with a, a partner at the wrong time. Yes. You know, <laughs> we've all had that experience. Didn't work so well. Mm-hmm. Um, or with a parent or with somebody significant in your life and the timing is off. And then something that could have been handled in this much time all of a sudden becomes a lifetime of catch-up or misunderstanding or a long time, maybe not a lifetime. And children can be really super sensitive. And generally, we're talking today about high school students because here they are in this incredible transition period between 
somebody telling me what to do and me wanting to decide who I am and how I want things to go and trying to traverse that gap between uh, being that newly arrived kind of, okay, I got a sense of where I'm going in life and yet being in that place of still having to take direction and learning how to want direction and you know, so many factors, the the emotional factors are huge. So from a point of view of a teacher and in the classroom, what would you suggest that someone do if they had a child who was, you know, a teenager who was maybe not with the program, just maybe feigning disinterest, Mm What do, you, what do you think that's about? Well, I think number one is you try to get as much background knowledge as possible. And, and educators, counselors, you know, administrators have the ability to look at their cumulative folder. And then from there, you actually can get a wealth of information or sometimes not enough information. Then you kind of surround yourself with other people that the student may know or interact with on a familiar basis and that would allow you to kind of get a little bit more of a leverage. Mm-hmm. One thing that's also worked for me is just calling the parents up and just say, Hey, have you noticed um, Susie's just not acting herself lately at home? Um, what is it that I can do to help? And, and that also shows the parents that you're acting not only from a, a caring perspective, but a holistic person as well. Okay, let me ask a question about that because, you know, my PhD is in psychology, so I was dealing with educational psychology all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's really difficult to sometimes, and you have, it's not difficult once you know how, I'm not suggesting that, but it can be difficult for people to know how to approach a parent who could not hear that there's anything wrong with the child or that it has been noticed by the school that the child may have a difficulty the parent doesn't want to acknowledge. Right. And that actually happened yesterday to me. Um, I had a young lady who she was just really beside herself and she was being comforted in the hallways. And I, I pulled her into my office just to avoid, you know, um, prying eyes onto her. And that's when I found out that she thought she was telling her parents everything, but deep down she wasn't. And when she tells me she's having dark thoughts, that's an immediate red flag to me that, you know, number one, this is something I can't take lightly. And number two, I sincerely doubt that she's had that conversation with the parents of how serious the matter is. So, you know, I, I call the parent and I say, you know, in my experiences, this is something serious where I need you to come here immediately. And I said, Mm -hmm. she's not in trouble, but as a parent to a parent, and and that's exactly how I state it. You know, if, if my child was feeling this upset or this concerning, I would want somebody to reach out to me in the same echoes and, and rationale. And then from there, you know, I, I introduced myself and I say exactly what I've seen, the conversations and I tell them, based upon my prior experiences, this is the direction that I see it's heading in. You know, and then that's where we have that exchange of information. And then that's when the dad and mom realize that she's never said all the stuff to her before, to them before. 
And, you know, from there, it, it was an instant trust factor. And when the parents saw the children yesterday, you know, the girl just started crying. You know, she felt guilty for, you know, being an inconvenience for this. And, and we tried to explain to her, it's not an inconvenience. Yeah. The parents want to hear their children hurt because we can't fix it. We can't make it better unless we know. And, you know, I, we all reassured her at the same time and, you know, she felt better. Mm -hmm. And and I explained to the families, I said, this is just the beginnings. You know, there's going to be some times where she's going to have ups, she's going to have downs, but more importantly, seek out the right people inside and outside the building to build on this moment. Did, did the girl feel at all betrayed that she told you the problem, but she didn't tell them, and then you told them. Well, how did you bridge that gap, Aaron? At first, she did feel betrayed, truthfully. And, and as I explained to her, I said, tell me some things that you don't want me to say. And I said, I can't promise you, but I'll try to phrase it and say it at the right times where they won't focus on what is the concerns to you? I said, my concerns is the depression. And, and I told her that outright depression. Right. And I think she understood that I could sense that she was hurting. You know, mental illness to me is just as bad as cancer or any other serious illness. And we, we can't look at it lightly. We have to take it very seriously if we're going to conquer it. And, oh, absolutely. And, you know, once the parents came in, you know, I, I looked very closely at her body language and I remember those little cues that she told me not to say, you know, for example, she told me, don't tell them that my boyfriend was here. Well, that was the one who was consoling her, you know, and I made sure not to say that. I told her I saw her in the hallway. So, you know, I felt like she could open up more if she knew that I was really focused on the problem and not you know, that the, all the details that the parents need to know to which they could get a little upset with. So you built trust with her. She knew she was safe. And then you were able to talk to the parent. What would you have done if the parent says, why are you calling me? It's my child's problem. If, you know, maybe she's just doing it to get your attention or get attention from you. Mm -hmm. What would you do in that circumstance? Well, I, I would tell them very blatantly. You know, I said, I've been in education for over 20 years, and this is not the first case of depression that I've seen before. And I said, truthfully, in my opinion, not only did this warrant a call to you, I've called our school counselor as well to make her aware. And she verified what I'm thinking right now and saying to you. And if they continue with that line, I'll ask them point blank. I said, ma'am or sir, no disrespect intended. Can you live with your child being hurt? And you knew those clues mm -hmm. and, and you would probably hear a pause and I'd be like, that's my point. You right. don't want to live with that mistake because there's been other parents who had the signs and didn't ignore them. Yes. Well, you know, part of what's in the background, and you probably know this because you know my work a little bit, is that many times, far too many times, even though it may seem rare to the average individual, to me looking at it all the time, it's far too many times, mm -hmm. you will have a parent who is one of the people that I talk about a lot, a hijackal mm -hmm. parent, a parent who has 
some traits and patterns and cycles that make them appear narcissistic or antisocial. And when we have a, a parent in that category, they are horrified that their child does not make them look good. Mm -hmm. And that's partly why I'm, I'm pushing on this question, Erin, because when that happens, the child is going to get into more difficulty at home because they weren't able to disclose to the parent because the parent didn't want to listen, couldn't listen, couldn't hear anything unless it made the parent look and feel good. Right. And so then we have a domino effect that happens because the, the young adult comes to school and they've got this whole story from their youth. They've been told since they drew breath that you're only good enough when you're making me look good and I will validate you for what you do well, but I will completely undervalue you. In fact, probably not even demonstrate any interest in who you are and how you feel. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have that lack of validation for feelings and, and presence and overvalidation for um, doings, things that, that, that they do well. Mm -hmm. So then when a child has an emotional issue, they think already, I can't keep that parent happy. They are yeah. going to be super upset with me. So it's the last person they're going to tell. Have you had that experience? Yeah. I mean, truthfully, I have. Um, you know, it, it's something where they're in denial that their child is acting out in that way. And, you know, number one, I reinforce to them in no way, shape or fault does that behavior, especially with depression as a reflection of them. I say, just be grateful that they're calling out for help. Whether you saw the signs, all saw the signs, you know, we have a chance to save a life from becoming a travesty. And to me, that's the essence of the conversation. I've had situations, and as I'm sure you have, where parents have blown up at their children right in the middle of your face. And at that point, what I do is I ask the student to step outside for a minute and I have a heart to heart conversation with the parent. And, you know, you, you kind of go in a way that is not threatening, but hopefully they receive the message that, you know, the way that you're handling this needs to be formatted a little bit differently. And, and, you know, whether they're yelling or threatening to hit a child, you know, you, you remind them that there's other ways to have that conversation. Great. So for those of you who are listening, you know that I'm going to ask more questions about hijackles of Dr. Aaron Smith. You want to learn more about him, you go to this really interesting website, wr.solutions, wr, that's work readiness, dot solutions but wr dot solutions and he's written um an interesting book i'm sure it's interesting i haven't read it but i was intrigued by reading the book cover and he's got another one coming out the book that he has written is called awakening your stem school for those people who are interested in math and science and all those things being further enjoyed and having more attention and enthusiasm in the school system i know it would be a good book to encourage that so let's just go back you made it sound like it was going to be easy to set the parent outside and have a little heart to heart with them <laughs> and if you have truly met 
a narcissistic uh, parent, and that narcissistic parent's not going to listen to you. They are going to have like no interest. And who do you think you are telling me how to parent my child? And what makes you think that, you know, you're closer to my child than I am? So, you know, have you had that experience? I have. I have. And and one thing in, in the state of Virginia is I, I have a card that thankfully I've never used, but I can pull it out because if I feel like that parent is an imminent threat to the child, I can hold the parent and wait for social services to call. Ah, good. That's you know, and, and I, like I said, thankfully I've never had to do that, mm-hmm. but I try to make the parents aware that, yeah, I understand things go on at home, but I do understand if we see the signs, we are obligated to contact child protective services, you know? And that is, that is the, the hijackal parent's nightmare because what a hijackal parent will do is threaten to call Child Protective Services or CPS on the other parent just to get power over them. Right. And so this is a, a power move that a hijackal has in their arsenal. So I find it you know, fascinating that you could have that conversation with one and and gain any headway because it's sort of game on with them at that moment. What's your experience? How did you talk them down? Well, number one, I, I explained to them, I'm assuming that they're yelling, um, you know, is number one, I want to have a conversation with you, but I absolutely will not have it in the manner that which we're demonstrating this. Right. I said, we're here for the right reasons. And I first thank you for being here because it shows to me that you do care. And then they'll kind of calm down a little bit. I might hand them a tissue, you know, a little bottle of water. And then, you know, those little things hopefully will show them that I do care about them and their situation too. Sometimes those Jekyll and Hyde parents have stories that we're not aware of, but we're seeing the effects of those stories. You know, some of them could be unemployed. Some of them could be homeless. And, and if they are able and willing to open up to me, then I can hopefully provide some supports to them such as, um, you know, some behavior therapy that our school division offers or, you know, some, a church that may have some food pantry, you know, and really help build trust with them so that they know that I see more than just this situation that the child is going through. Mm-hmm. And I think it helps take a little of that edge off when, when they see that, you know, I care about the whole situation, not just one side of it. Right. I think too, um, I'm interested in your take on this, but I think too, sometimes appearing to and genuinely wanting to demonstrate that you can sit on the parent side of things to say, oh yeah, I know it's difficult. And I know that providing for a family, taking care of a family, the demands of a family, the constancy of the demands of a family. Sometimes they just need to be acknowledged. Sometimes we just need to say them out loud, don't we? Absolutely. That they know that we heard that, that, you know, I love what you said. I, (laughs) I used to do a lot of training of teachers and and, uh, administrators and I would say when somebody, a question was, what do you do when a parent comes down the hallway after school to your door in full flight, you know, in full sail, they're just out to get you. What's the first thing you say? And of course, people would have all kinds of um, 
fears and concerns and things they'd like to say. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. You know, my suggestion was very similar to what you said. I would say, oh, just match their energy. Oh, I'm so glad you're here because only parents who really care come to school. Right. That's it. That that's it. You they're going to expect you to be traumatized, to be scared out of your wits, and and you try to play a little game with them, matching them wit for wit. So if they come in there, for like a better words, like a gangbuster, you go up there and you walk them, you shake their hands. Come on in, let's sit down, let's have a good old fashioned conversation. And that's when I pull the test next to one another, but I keep the door open too. So that way, if things do get out of hand, hopefully other people will hear it down the hallway. You know, and then here we go. Let's let's see what your concerns are. Let's resolve them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think when when we kind of put ourselves in someone else's shoes and let them know that we've set, we've stood in those shoes before, or that we can imagine the difficulties of standing in those shoes, it kind of allows them to breathe a little bit without taking away anything from them, right. because they are like. I'm angry. I am upset. How dare you kind of imaginable conversation going on in their head. Mm -hmm. And when you don't take it from them, you don't whip it away and say, no, 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 you can't behave like that. You simply step in and say, wow, that's a lot of energy. You really seem to have something that's really important to say. For us to be able to match that energy at any time, whether we're talking about school and parents or we're talking about our partner or a parent or whomever, for us to know that by letting somebody know that we kind of know where they're at by matching their intensity and their tone and their pace is a really helpful thing to do. It does. It does. Yeah. I, I think they feel like you can empathize with them a little bit more because they're feeling what you're feeling and vice versa, you know, and, and I, I acknowledge it. I say, look, I get you're mad and I would be kind of mad too, but let's look at the other side of the issue, you know, and just say for a moment, can you help me walk through this together so you can see what I can see? Yes. Yeah. So now, you know, I'm talking today with Dr. Aaron Smith. He's from Chesapeake, Virginia, and he's written a book called um, Awakening your STEM school, but basically we're not talking about science and math and good things like that today because those are subjects we teach children, but basically, first of all, we teach children and young adults. And before we can teach them a mathematical formula, first we're teaching them who we are and letting them know that we see who they are. And that's the more important dynamic that's going on if we really want to convey any useful educational information, right? <laughs> that's exactly right. Kids don't care about what you know until they know that you care. That's right. I, I so agree. And, you know, I've taught at all levels myself, Aaron, and, and uh, <clears throat> I was a single parent raising three kids. So I needed to have a job that had the same hours and holidays yep. as my children. Yep. So I went into the school system and it was great. It was wonderful, but it was so important especially when I ended up working in the uh, school for at-risk youth because that was the last part of where I worked. And these kids were, when I went to that school, the 
average length of stay of a student was three months because when I went there, they're smoking, they're belligerent, they're like, oh. And I said, oh, no, this is not going to fly at all. These kids don't know who they are. They don't feel taken care of. They don't feel respected. Therefore, they're being disrespectful. And so I was there for five years. It was the last thing I did in education. And at the end of those five years, we had had consistently the same students flowing through the whole time. And one of the things that I did was that I had an upgraded kitchen put in. Hmm. And I taught the kids to cook and cook with me. And it came from this, Aaron, because I was chatting with the kids one day and I said, I just have interest. How many of you eat a meal with your family? And there was kind of a lot of eye shuffling going on. And, and eventually it turned out that one child ate one meal a week with her family. Wow. Nobody else ever sat at a table with their family. And that ranged from families that had no food to families who had food, but it was in the cupboard, to those who had food that was cooked and left on the stove, to those who put it on a table and you could come and get it if you wanted, to those who sat down with their families. So that one child who had one meal a week, which was Sunday dinner, was the only one out of 18 students in that conversation who had that experience. Mm. How basic is it to sit and enjoy food together? I mean, it is a basic ritual around the world. Mm -hmm. And it allows the people we're with to see, I see you. I'm here with you. You're, you know, we're, we're eating this meal together. So one of the things that I know turned the school around was that every morning I got there early I made muffins and decaf coffee because these are teenagers, right? And they, <laughs> they need their coffee. Um, right. And so when they got to school, they could smell this. And as long as they behaved appropriately, they could sit and chat and have this. And then every day, two students came with me and we prepared lunch for everybody else. Oh, that's brilliant. So they learned to cook and become self-sufficient. They also learn to clean up. <laughs> mm -hmm. But there were two rules at eating the food. We all mm -hmm. sat together. This is a small school because they're quite troubled kids. Right. Um, and we all sat together, and there were two rules. You had to stay till everyone was finished, mm -hmm. and you had to ask someone something that let, you, let them know that you remembered something about them from earlier in the week. So how did that go? Um, what did you do yesterday? I thought you were going to do this, right, you know? Right. And and they they changed. They changed because they were seen. They changed because they were fed. And they changed because they gave, right? They were giving and they were getting good feedback for, for creating food for their friends, right? And so then that givingness they learned something as well. And they got back praise and accolades and thanks and acknowledgement. And so many times when we're dealing with kids who are having difficulties, the things you were talking about, those underlying things you don't know about, could be ameliorated by remembering that maybe they haven't eaten 
or maybe they haven't ever had anybody who looked them in the eye long enough to actually see the light inside them. So, so true. Yeah, it's a big deal. So let's divert for a little bit and tell people what STEM is, because okay. I've mentioned your book. So tell them why you wrote, um, you wrote that book. Well, I, I work at a, a place called Aviation Academy. And what we do is we use science, technology, engineering, and mathematics through an aviation, pardon the pun, vehicle <laughs> to really help kids understand and develop skill sets needed for the 21st century workplace. It is transforming curriculum from very rote worksheet types into active student center learning. Great. And really, Great. on the school side of it, it, it really is a game changer because it really helps close the gap from what the workplace needs. But from the business side of it, it really is the catalyst to creating a better economy. And that's why it really needs to be developed everywhere, not only in schools, mm -hmm. trade schools and colleges, at, at the workplace, but also at home too. Right. Let me just jump in here because there's a piece we really need to talk about. And as you said that, I realize it. You know, this whole thing about cell phones. <laughs> you know, yes, we can access the Internet. We can learn all kinds of wonderful things. We can also avoid all kinds of wonderful things. And so when we're learning together by doing, which is what I hear you talking about, like you really have an airplane engine or you really understand a runway or the physics of liftoff or when you really get into it, not from a book or watching a movie. I mean, didn't you go through that? I just saw way too many movies when I went yep. to school. <laughs> but the actual hands-on doing this, uh, this is what it is. This is what it works like. What do you see as the problems? Mm -hmm is a whole different educational experience than turn to page 21 and do the exercise. It is. It, it's something, you know, number one, I, I ask the teachers, teach the way you would want to be taught. And, and I remind them, do you want to look at a book for 90 minutes? And do you want to answer questions one through 20? You know, how are you really going to make a difference with those kids? Because the only thing you're doing is setting yourself for failure. You're setting the kids up for failure. Right. You know, be spontaneous. You know, do something that is going to make the class excited to come to school. You know, and, and really, that's what we should be doing. As children, what did we learn when we were three, four, and five years old? We learned it through our senses. You know, we weren't ready yet to learn a book. I'm talking about, you know, maybe an ABC book. I'm talking about the hardcore stuff. You know, we started to fall down before we started to walk. You know, we learned with Play-Doh. Some of the best learning kids ever do is they learn on the playground. You know, that's when they develop those skill sets of communication, patience, respect, you know, how to win and lose a game. You know, all those emotions carry over into the real world in day-to-day -day conversations. Right. And so true. And the kids are experiencing their life, not watching their lives. Right. <laughs> so why don't we join in and help with the experience? Because it's very similar to the story I was telling about creating food together. You know, they, we, we also at that school, 
the kids had we had a three a three part rotation, and the students went through it three week rotation. And one of the weeks was you were on work crew. That yeah. meant you had to go out and do whatever the projects we were hired for, whether that was landscaping or gardening or framing or building or whatever it was, to learn what it meant to work together, to have a work ethic, to yep. actually create something and stand back and go, yes, we did a good job. And you know, we document everything and take photos of them working and all and build resumes for them. But it was the doing this. It was the engagement in the whole experience as opposed to, you know, we're going to watch a movie about how to put up a, a wall. Right. Um, yeah. Great for YouTube. It's got it right there on your phone and you go do it. That's a whole different matter than sitting going, oh, another movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it reminds me of Ben Stein. You know, I'm yeah. sure you've seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you know, uh -huh. Bueller, Bueller. And it's just, that is what it shouldn't be. But that's unfortunately how kids see it. Right. So this is, this is exciting stuff. So, you know, I wanted everybody to understand what you, what your basic great excitement is around the STEM stuff, because when we can get to a kid, we can interest them in something. But first mm -hmm. of all, we have to have them want to talk to us or at least have a mild interest in finding out who we are. And that starts by having more than a mild interest in them, even if you do do it, as you mentioned earlier, you know, subtly. Mm -hmm. and um, and it sort of be available in their lives and exactly. know that you're emotionally available as well as physically available. So this is all really good stuff, Erin. And I know that you have a lot of expertise in STEM stuff and workplace readiness, which connects directly to your website, wr.solutions, but also connects to what we were talking about, about the work crew that the kids in my school had, the experiential learning that kids in your school are having, and the relationship to the real world. They, this is what you do every day when you're an adult. Would you like to learn more about how to do it better? Right. And then that's much more compelling, isn't it? Um, and in this passion for workplace readiness, where did it come from? What got you hooked? Believe it or not, I, I guess I'd always been a fan of it because it started with just loving STEM. Um, I started writing my second book, uh, Blank Check, Recreating America's Broken Schools. And as I was you know, working on one of the last edits, I said, you know, the graduates really need to focus on workplace readiness, workforce development, things like that. So, of course, I started researching it, and then I realized – there's no systematic way. You know, they give you these tests to tell you what you're weak on, but there's no pipeline that's really been developed. And ever since then, and within the last year, I, it just seems to be something that I'm infatuated with learning and sharing and just showing people that you're talking about a true game changer. I mean, it, you know, it could eliminate poverty. It can eliminate right. economic disparity. If people just took the time and worked as a community, I mean, bringing all the key stakeholders in and believing in the same vision, talking the same talk. And, you know, I, I see it in bits and pieces, but yet have I found a place where it's all utopic and it's working fully optimally. 
But that's it. Life is a work in progress. Mm-hmm. And sure, you know, utopia is lovely to talk about, but there's every variation approaching it. <laughs> so yep. we have to do the work that, that um, we're passionate about. So I'm happy that you're passionate about that. I know that I've mentioned it before, but if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Aaron L. Smith's work, you can find him at wr.org solutions. It's like they made that new domain extension just for him. WR.solutions. Thanks so much for being my guest today, Aaron. I really appreciate you having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. And be sure to get other episodes in. Thanks for being here for today's episode of Emotional Savvy. If you want to deepen your emotional savvy, make shifts in your relationships, and enjoy life and relationships more, work with me, Dr. Roberta Shaler. Get my books, enjoy my courses, or work with me directly. You can do that by visiting forrelationshiphelp.com, F-O-R, relationship, H-E-L-P.com, and subscribe to Tips for Relationships now. Don't miss a thing. Be empowered this week with more emotional savvy. this series, there are so many diverse ways that you can develop emotional savvy. And you want to be as skilled at it as you can, as interested as you can, so that you can have the best life possible. That's what I endeavor to do, bring you interesting guests, just like Dr. Aaron L. Smith. Remember to find him at wr.solutions. And we'll talk soon. And in the meantime, take good care.